Before we begin, a warning that this episode contains graphic subject matter. Some people may find it disturbing. Just for a moment, imagine spending your entire adult life focused on one thing, finding your mom's killer. Set aside all the personal grief and sadness over the murder of your parent, which for most of us would be insurmountable. But think about how it would impact your day-to-day work and family life, your spouse, your kids, your relationship with your friends, all of it. For Pune Gray, her mom's death has consumed her. She was in college when it happened. For her, it's not just a story. It's not just a podcast. It's her own personal hell. And she's been living it the past three decades. I would wonder, I would think each year, maybe you have a birthday that passes or each year the anniversary of your mom's murder passes. Do you get scared in a way or worried that another 15 or 20 years of your life goes by, the older you get, that um, if you don't have enough progress, do you get worried about not being able to resolve this in your life? No. I've never, I've never had a doubt that I'm gonna get the person that killed my mom. I, I knew it from the beginning, and I told my mom, I kept her at the funeral home longer. They can't remember the, um, funeral director, guy at the funeral home, saying, we have to let your mom go. This, I wasn't done. So I saw her every day and I, I told her I'm gonna, I'm gonna get the person that did that to her and I am going to, so no. It, it's gonna end. And it's gonna end with me getting the person that killed my mom. Effie Antazari was murdered in 1989, shot in the head at point blank range outside her apartment complex in Vancouver, Washington, which is just north of Portland, Oregon. To this day, Pune wakes up every morning thinking about her mom lying in a pool of her own blood about the person who put the gun to Effie's temple and fired, about how the only thing anyone saw was a yellow car speeding away from the scene. She goes to bed every night wondering what the killer might be doing at that very moment. Are they thinking about Effie? Are they worried someone out there might be looking for them after all these years? Pune has tried every avenue you can think of for help, and she has hit a lot of dead ends. She's consulted the FBI, a psychic, a hypnotist, lawyers, private investigators, forensic scientists, you name it. Parts of her house serve as a makeshift command center for the case. Her office looks like a scene from the movie American Gangster. She's got thousands of documents, crime scene photos, and photos of potential suspects. She's followed some of them herself over the years, secretly snapping their photographs from her car while they went about their day, like she's some sort of secret agent. She has maps connecting names and faces and places all filed neatly in binders. She's even offering a $250,000 reward for information. Hell, beyond that, she's spent more than a million dollars of her own money trying to track down the killer. But here's the thing, 
police already arrested somebody for the murder 31 years ago. And that man served 16 years in prison. Pune is convinced investigators got the wrong guy. And now she's on a mission to prove his innocence and lead officers to the person she believes committed the crime. This is the beginning of the end. I'm your host, Ashley Korslin. Welcome to The Yellow Car, a KGW original podcast. This is the beginning of the end. All right, she's calling. Hi, I was just about to hit call. <laughs> call you. Good. How are um, you? Good. It's been a while. I wasn't while. even sure if you're working. I'm like, is she working now? Or I am. It's been just kind of a crazy couple months getting, uh, you know, used to working at home and transitioning and all that. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, I'm working and, um, and yeah, how have you been? Working. <laughs> it sounds like you have made progress. This is my first time talking with Pune in about two months. It's the end of May 2020, and I've been working from home since the middle of March because of COVID-19. The whole thing put my podcast project on hold for a while, but now I'm back at it and I'm anxious because she tells me she has a really big update in her mom's case. So should, can I record this just to have it or you can sure, and you can tell me which parts, you know, if you need me to pause or anything. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, okay, I guess catch me up on what you've been up to the last two months. Well, so one of the things that happen is people are home now, right? They're not working on the count of the virus. So it really opened up an opportunity for us to start calling people and interviewing them. Um, so one of the first things that happened, there were multiple things that were happening simultaneously. Cause I think last time I spoke with you, we had, I believe we had collected DNA or yeah. we were in the process of getting our DNA. Um, so the, the DNA had been collected and sent into the lab. And so they were in the midst of processing the DNA for comparison with my mom's clothing. And in the meantime... Pune hired a private investigator who spent the last three months trying to get a DNA sample from the man they believe killed Effie. Yeah, so what they did is um, they started following him. Right, so we put him under surveillance to see what his routine was. And he has the same routine, but going to Taco Bell or Black Rock was not one of them. <laughs> so, <laughs> Shoot. <laughs> I guess that's just my routine. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> so, so uh, which is how you normally collect the sample, right? Someone right. has a cup of coffee, they throw it out of the garbage can, and you just grab it. Easy peasy. Um, right. That wasn't the case with this guy. So, so while the rest of the world was busy trying to figure out life with coronavirus, 
Pune's team of investigators has been digging through the trash of a man who has no idea he's being followed or that they've been searching for him for 31 years. And they said, just go and send all the samples over. And as it turns out, her investigators got something, a razor blade from the man's trash that appeared to have an old blood stain of his on it. We sent them six samples marked one through through six, with the first one being the razor, um, because we thought that would be the you know, one that they could get DNA off of, most likely, and they did. She goes on to tell me the lab tested the DNA from, let's call him John Doe for now, and compared it to DNA found on Pune's mom at the murder scene. We finally were able to get a clean sample sent into the lab, and they were able to um, get DNA, male DNA profile off of our suspect and send it into cybergenetics to be able to um, do a comparison, but it's called probabilistic genotyping against okay. my mom's clothing, specifically the left sweater, specifically in the area where she was grabbed. And the lab called with some really good news. <laughs> oh, what they say? They cannot exclude the suspect from being a contributor to the DNA located on my mom's left arm. Holy crap, so that matched. Yeah, so... If you can't tell from my voice, this is mind-blowing to me. According to Pune, the lab report showed a high likelihood that the DNA found on her mom belongs to the man Pune believes killed her. Pune and her team will still need to have more testing done, though, to get clearer results and possibly make an arrest. But it's a start. And during the coronavirus pandemic, I never thought Pune would get evidence that could potentially put her mom's killer in jail after all these years. Still, I can't help but wonder, is this really it? Is this the key she's been waiting for, for three decades? As we'll find out, nothing is this simple. I'll be honest with you. When I first heard this story, I was pretty skeptical. As a journalist, I'm always questioning things, especially story pitches that involve allegations of betrayal, corruption, and scandal. And this one has all the makings of a wild made-for-TV murder mystery with speculation about motives and suspects that would make most people say, okay, this is a crazy conspiracy theory. I mean, we're talking about the murder of a daycare owner that spirals into accusations of passport fraud and an elaborate business scheme. So yeah, it gets crazy. But then there are times where I ask myself, what if? Looking at the case with an open-minded lens has made me question a lot of things. I still don't have the answers. And it's not for me necessarily to prove or disprove, but to dig through the case file and examine the facts. I mean, it's not every day as a journalist, you get to follow someone's journey as they go through the process of trying to find a killer. Throughout the last year, there have been moments where I wonder, maybe Pune has it all wrong. And then there are times I think, maybe it could be as wild as she says it is. After all, maybe the truth is stranger than fiction. What, what's the adjective you used to describe your, is it, I don't want to use the word obsession in a, I don't mean that as a bad thing. Um, would you say obsession, fascination? How do you describe it to people? Because I bet you have people asking you at parties or you're out and this and that. How do you tell people about it? Honor. You know, I want to honor my mom. Mm-hmm. Uh, she had a life and someone took that away. 
So. Do you tell all your friends about this? I mean, do they pretty much know the case? Are they as vested? I mean, everybody knows everything. <laughs> <laughs> They've known it from day one. And, um, and the people that I've met since, for the most part, know, because it's a part of my life. Right. What initially drew me to this story and wanting to produce an entire podcast about it, frankly, is Pune. She might be one of the most fascinating people I've ever met. She is this petite Iranian woman, barely taller than five feet, with dark, slightly curly hair to her shoulders and big brown eyes. She is small, but boy, is she a force to be reckoned with. And she does not give up. Well, I built care facilities, mm -hmm. assisted living and uh, dementia care. And then I was heavily involved in real estate, uh, office, retail complexes. But... You know, um, I sold m most everything about three years ago. All the businesses? Yeah, so that I would start working on this case full time. And I did that when the science uh, evolved. Mm. And once I got to, once I was told we're, we're there, we're getting there, I um, started liquidating everything because I needed time to, Yeah. I knew it was going to be time in intensive to work on the case. I first met Pune in the fall of 2019. She had agreed to come to my news station in Portland so we could talk about the case face to face. I walked her down a hallway as we exchanged small talk. Then I took her to a conference room, just the two of us, where I recorded our first interview. It was November 1st, Friday, um, just before noon. And Pune Gray? Yes. Um, is sitting with me here. Um, so you're just kind of here to talk to me a little bit about what happened with your mom. So yeah, just I guess continue what, what you were just telling me about, which was the motive. Oh, so, um, well, it's a, it's a long-winded motive, but... She is this interesting mix of composed and confident, but also a bit scattered. She's so articulate and so put together, but you'll notice I find her hard to follow sometimes. Like where do they come into play there? You know, it'd really be better if I started at the beginning of the story. <laughs> Did you not begin at the beginning? No. No. <laughs> I well, didn't. I, because if I did, because then it would answer your questions. Okay. I, it's I, easy to get lost when she talks about the case. And with a story this complicated and drawn out, it's totally understandable. So I'm going to do my best to make it easy for you to follow along. Because in the end, I promise you, it's a story like you've never heard before. You have a whole office dedicated to it. And a dining room. And a dining room. <laughs> yes. The first time I visited Pune's house in Vancouver, I was impressed, but not entirely surprised by her level of dedication. This isn't some amateur detective operation she's got going on here. She is as organized as they come. And my storage rooms. And the storage are room. full of files. Okay, describe these rooms to me. What, what do we see in them? A lot of files. Like how many pages, would, if you had to guess? Boxes. Boxes. Like mm -hmm. probably hundreds of thousands of documents, right? Over the years. Related to this case. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You have like a whiteboard that looks like a quadratic equation when I looked at it. <laughs> what is that? Oh, my God. It does. It does. It looked like yeah, all these different colors of markers that. with like equations. Yeah. I was, yeah you're right, because I was color coding. Well, <laughs> I was trying to solve the case. <laughs> You're like a freaking PI. Like you're like a private investigator slash attorney slash detective slash therapist slash God knows what else. Mm -hmm. 
Wow. Well, I have a goal, so I kind of have to be. It might be easy for you to discount Pune's laughter or jokes as her being carefree or nonchalant about such a tragic topic, but trust me, this is serious for her. It's not a stretch to say that this case has become part of her identity. If you had to guesstimate a dollar amount over the years you've spent on this, of your oh. own money? Yeah, a lot. I mean, are we talking like a million dollars? Way more than that. Way more than that. Mm -hmm. Like this is your this is your life. I mean, this is who you are and what you stand for. It is. And when I didn't have any money back thirty years ago, if I had a little bit, I'd spend it on this case. So whatever free money I had would go towards um, working on this. Mm -hmm. And as my income grew, then same thing. So I've always devoted. Um, money towards this case. Your, you have, so you have two daughters and your husband. How do they describe this effort? It's been their whole lives too. It has been. Um, I mean, the girls are, they're just used to it. It's a part of my life. They understand it. Um, they're supportive of it. Um, they don't ask too many questions because they hear me talking on the phone all the time <laughs> and they see my charts. <laughs> Do they just roll their eyes? No. Or no, are they pretty, they, they're good with it? Yeah, they are. I mean, it, the older one's a little more vested, of course, mm -hmm. than the younger one. Um, you know, my husband goes back and forth between, you have such a good life, why are you doing this to yourself? Mm -hmm. um, but I don't see it as doing anything to me. I see it as a part of me. You might be wondering why? After all this time, why put yourself through the pain of reliving your mom's murder? I flat out asked her. Because I'm sure you have days where you, you ask yourself, why am I going through all this trouble? I remind myself, I mean, Definitely there are times when I'm like, what am I doing? Because you get tired. And, um, and like I said, you get rejection. You get rejected quite a bit. And I'm kind of used to that, but it's still, I still get down when that happens. But the fact is that someone took her life and she had at least another 40 maybe 50, she was in really good health, left. And so I shouldn't, I shouldn't feel bad about me. But if I don't do it, it will eat me up. You know, it just takes a piece of you every single day. And I mean, there has not been one day that's gone by since my mom's murder that I haven't thought about her and this case. So it's time. My name is Rod Englert, and I am the principal 
owner of Englert Forensic Consultants. This is Rod Englert. Pune hired him in 1996 to work as a forensic analyst on her mom's case and review all the evidence with a fine-tooth comb. And I've been in business, uh, been in law enforcement for 57 years, going on 58. Rod works on unsolved murder cases all over the country, doing things like blood spatter interpretation and crime scene reconstruction. Walk me through. Um... I asked him to walk us through Effie's murder. Okay, it was May the 1st, 1989, six in the morning when Effie walked outside of her apartment and it's a two-story apartment and she walked down a flight of maybe four steps to the sidewalk and right to her car, which would be to her left as she walked between her car and a bluish pickup, which would have been to her right. And the space between the two is only like 26 inches approximately. And she inserts her key or going to into the door lock, obviously because her keys were on the ground in front of where her body will, will be that I would describe. And uh, someone approaches her from her left and they're very close to her and grabs her left arm, her upper arm, and then shoots her as she turns to look at that person, shoots her in the left side, the left left temple, below the left temple, into the left ear, which means she struggled, probably struggled a little bit or made an abrupt move. And the bullet exited. 42-year-old Effie Antazari, a mother of two, was on her way to work at the daycare she owned when it happened. Investigators say that she was shot with a 38 caliber handgun. The single round was incapacitating. Effie dropped to the pavement between her car and the blue pickup. There were no witnesses to the crime. Detectives recorded this 13-minute video in the hours after Effie's body was discovered. The time is just after 8 a.m. The video shows yellow police tape placed all over the parking lot as uniformed deputies stand watch or walk around canvassing for evidence. About four and a half minutes in, the audio gets really staticky as the detective walks the camera right up to Effie's body. There is blood everywhere. It looks like someone dumped a can of red paint all over the pavement. Effie is wearing blue pants, a sweater, and slingback black heels. Next to her body, her purse and another bag rest on the ground. Her wallet and her cash remain as well. Effie's arms are out in front of her, folded neatly over one another. Her blue pants are covered in droplets of blood. The camera zooms in so closely to Effie's head, you feel like you can almost reach out and touch her. It's hard to watch. Eventually, the camera pans around the parking lot, capturing nearby buildings and license plate numbers on cars, an effort to collect and preserve as much visual evidence as possible before the scene is cleared. Toward the end, the video cuts to a shot taken from an upstairs apartment, with the camera pointing down at the crime scene below. Then the video recording stops. Remember how I said there were no witnesses to the shooting? 
Well, there was one person who saw something, a woman named Diana who lived in an apartment near Effie. She would later tell police that around six that morning, she heard a loud clapping noise outside her window. At the time, she thought it was a car backfiring, but it was so loud that it woke her up. And when she looked out her window, she saw a yellow car speed out of the parking lot. This clue will later become a big part of Pune's search for the killer. Investigators also collected evidence at the scene that could point to a suspect. They were able to recover five latent fingerprint lifts and send them to a lab. A latent lift is an impression taken from a surface after it's been touched by a finger or a palm. We'll get into more detail about those fingerprints later on. But perhaps the biggest piece of evidence for Pune wouldn't be discovered until many years after the murder. DNA found on Effie's sweater. That's the DNA that she and I talked about at the beginning of this episode. The DNA she's currently testing against a sample from the man she believes is the killer. Now keep in mind, basic DNA testing wasn't developed until the mid 80s. So for investigators working Effie's homicide in 1989, they didn't have the technology or the knowledge to look or even test for DNA that may have been left behind. But 23 years later, Pune had the advantage of not only hindsight, but advancements in science to get a leg up. Well, um, touch DNA had started to become popular. You know, I mean, it, not, I don't think popular is the right word, but it just come to fruition. Um, at least we were hearing about it. If you haven't heard of touch DNA, a Google search will turn up a case that we've all heard of, the Jean Benet Ramsey murder of 1996. I found a 2008 CNN article with the headline, recently developed touch DNA technology has cleared all members of Jean Benet Ramsey's family of her slang. I am not a DNA expert, so I'm going to read to you this section from Scientific American for a basic explanation of touch DNA. The method analyzes skin cells left behind when assailants touch victims, weapons, or something else at a crime scene. Touch DNA doesn't require you to see anything or any blood or semen at all. It only requires seven or eight cells from the outermost layer of our skin. So the article goes on to say that the key is knowing where to look for those cells. And that brings us to Pune's discovery in 2012, while she was looking over crime scene photos with forensic analyst Rod Inglert. And so I met with Rod, and Rod had always said, based on how my mom was laying on the ground, that she had been laid down by somebody else, that because the shot was an incapacitating shot, that she wouldn't have been able to lay down the way she was. So he thought that the way she was laying was atypical of the type of homicide, you know, the, the shooting. Um, so when we sat down, we started slowly going through the crime scene photos to see where she was grabbed. And that's when we noticed the indent in her sweater. So it's an indent of where he grabbed her and she was wearing this really bulky sweater. So it created an indent from where he put his, grabbed her with his hand, but it also created a bulge on the other side um, of her sweater. So we knew to look for uh, DNA in that specific area. So at that point, we went to the Clark County Sheriff's Office, talked to them about touch DNA, and they agreed. So this would have been in um, mid-2013, I believe July of 2013. 
they agreed to send my mom's clothing to Bodhi International for DNA collection. Bodhi International collected DNA from various areas of my mom's sweater, including the area where it appeared as, as though she was grabbed. But the problem at the time was that it was in the form of a mixture, and they weren't able to decipher that. Like, we didn't have the technology. Today, we do. It's called probabilistic genotyping. That's the testing Pune and I were discussing in the beginning of this episode. But Pune's lab needs additional DNA samples to finish its full report. For that to happen, she needs the local prosecuting attorney and sheriff's office to release crime scene evidence that's locked away. As it turns out, it's proving to be a bit more challenging than she thought to get that accomplished. And so what, what do they have right now still in evidence today? Uh, they have my mom's sweater, her pants, uh, shoes, her watch, um, her necklace that she was wearing, her purse, and the bags. Some of my mom's clothing was already released and examined, and we have the analysis from that. But there are other areas that need to be tested as well. And so we've been working with the DA's office to um, release the remainder. According to Pune, it's been a headache trying to make that happen. She's been asking for months. You might be wondering why she's having to push so hard. Maybe you're asking yourself, why won't officials just give her what she wants and test everything they have in evidence? Couldn't it help them solve the case? That's because of this. In the state's eyes, the case is closed and has been since 1989. It's not unsolved or cold, not in the slightest. The killer was arrested, charged, and imprisoned for 16 years. His name, Mike Entazari, Effie's husband and Pune's father. Pune is convinced police got the wrong guy, that her dad was framed, and all that evidence she's had her private investigator collecting from trash cans over the last few months. She believes it'll prove her dad wasn't the shooter because Mike's DNA wasn't found anywhere on Effie. And the rest of the evidence used in court to convict him, well, multiple forensic experts today say it deserves another look. They have serious doubts that Mike was the killer and say the evidence doesn't back it up. Nothing lasts forever Little by little, Pune is zeroing in on the man and the people she believes executed her mom in cold blood. You see, it's not just one person she's after. It's a group of four. And she's ready to go to any lengths necessary to prove it. This is the beginning of the end. Are you willing to go to war, so to speak, over this? Are you willing to, to never let it go and keep pushing at all well, costs? I'm always ready for anything. You know, when you go through 30 years of rejections, you learn really fast to have plan A, you know, have all your ducks in a row and have all your plans set up and ready to go. Um, so I hope it doesn't get to that. 
uh, I really do because I'll, we need to get the person that killed my mom and this is a 30 year old case and I can't lose that. It's really important for me that that happen. And I, I, you know, I promised my mom 30 years ago that, that I would get the person that killed my mom. And so I, we've got to go, we've got to move. This is the beginning of the end. This season on The Yellow Car. I remember talking to the DA and I said, don't you think you should find the yellow car? It didn't make any sense when there was no blood on the gun and when there was such a controversy about the bullet. So if we went through the evidence, you can see how the killer is setting everything up to set my dad up. Do you think that Mike was wrongly imprisoned and that he was innocent? I do. Yeah, I do think that. So you're saying you would not be able to say that it was absolutely one way or the other Mike's gun? No. But you could say it could have been another gun. Correct. Effie Antizari was involved with a group of people in some business transactions. We started to find evidence of illegal activities happening. There were multiple defensive wounds on her forearm. Maybe she was getting pushed around. We are finding new information, it seems like, every day. None of us ever think that someone's going to murder us. So these are dangerous people. Very dangerous people. Extremely dangerous people. The Yellow Car is a KGW and Vault Studios production. Please subscribe and leave us a rating or review. We have a lot more information about this case, including videos and pictures on kgw.com slash the yellow car, as well as on the KGW YouTube page. This show is produced, written, and hosted by me, Ashley Korslin. Our audio editor and co-producer is Zachary Carver. Our executive producer is John Tierney. Original artwork by Jeff Patterson and videography by Kurt Austin. Special thanks to Will Johnson and Reed Redmond at Vault Studios, Will Herman, our Tegna Legal Counsel, Andy Thomas and Mila Mamitsa at KGW, and the KGW management and staff. <laughs>